Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Freedom uh, Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights to free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Mitch Daniels, who just announced that he is stepping down from his position as the 12th president of Purdue University. Before assuming that role in 2013, he served as the governor of the state of Indiana and as the director of the Office of Management and Budget in the second Bush administration. During his presidency at Purdue, he oversaw a number of initiatives, including expansion of online education, building partnerships with local charter schools, and addressing the cost of college. He also carved out a national reputation as a leader on campus free speech issues. Purdue dramatically improved its position in the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education ratings, uh, most recently appearing as number three um, in those ratings. Purdue was the second university after Princeton to adopt the Chicago principles on free expression. And during his presidency, Daniels frequently spoke out about the importance of free speech. So thank you for joining me and welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Um, I thought we might start with your decision to become a university president in the first place um, after a career outside of academia. When the opportunity arose, um, what did you think about and why did you decide to take that leap? My first thought was, whose crazy idea was this? But it grew on me uh, rather quickly. I, I confess to having said no two or three times before I wised up and said yes. And when I did, I think... Um, the deciding factors were, first of all, uh, uh, I had a huge admiration for this place, uh, Purdue, and and what I and it, it's uh, I think special opportunity in a information economy uh, as a as a center and a potentially bigger center of STEM leadership and research uh, to uh, uh, make a, an important uh, contribution to state and nation. Um, and beyond that, I I had an appreciation for the uh, importance of our higher ed system as a whole to our national success. It, we've slipped uh, by most, by many estimates as a nation in some uh, realms of competitiveness, but our universities as a collective, I think, remain uh, the best in the world and we wanna preserve that. So I was in intrigued ultimately with the chance to play a small part in um, in, uh, in a context beyond Purdue. And, and it sounds like no regrets. No, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, satisfying in the sense that I do believe we've, uh, advanced the, uh, uh, this institution for which we're responsible and just, uh, a, a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I've spent an awful lot of time with, uh, you know, 20 to 30 year olds and, uh, that, uh, that's a good education in itself. Right. 
1967, the University of Chicago produced um, the Calvin Report, uh, which argued that universities as institutions uh, should be politically neutral and avoid taking positions on controversial issues while protecting the right of individual members of the campus community to take such positions. Uh, not many universities embrace the spirit of the Calvin Report and its routine for academic institutions um, and leaders of academic institutions to issue public statements about controversial political and social issues. Um, you've come at this uh, somewhat differently since you spent your career in politics before becoming a university president. Um, but you've said that when you uh, became a university president, uh, you took a vow of political celibacy. Um, why did you do that? And to what degree do you think it's problematic for university presidents to comment publicly um, on political events? There are two dimensions to this answer. One is personal. I was coming. Um, at, at least directly coming from a, uh, a stint in elected public office, the only one I ever sought or ever expect to. But that was my uh, immediate, that was my job uh, at the time that, uh, that uh, the Purdue trustees uh, offered me this position. Uh, on the day I accepted it in front of a very large crowd in our a very large uh, uh, Elliott Hall, um, I, I made that statement that from that point on, I had six months to go in the last job. Um, and uh, I made that uh, from that moment on, I would refrain from any partisan activity. I thought it was very, very important to stress from the jump that uh, that I uh, understood that this was a public institution and that uh, I would have a very different set of, uh, of duties and stakeholders. And I've think I can say that I have maintained that posture now for more than 10 years. Um, and um, so to that extent, it was a matter of uh, re reflecting my own personal situation. I People had a perfectly natural, I'll say, suspicion that maybe uh, I would misuse the, the uh, job. Uh, maybe I was just using it as a, a, a Holding as a holding tank or a launching pad for something else, um, and um, I, I wanted to try to emphasize that no, I really understood. I was serious about this, trying to do good work here. Uh, wasn't angling for anything else. Had no other agenda. Now, all that said, I do believe the Calvin principles were and are absolutely uh, uh, on point. You know, Chicago uh, uh, updated or rewrote its uh, sort of free speech uh, principles, but they don't need to rewrite the Calvin statement, in my opinion. And um, I should add, finally, that the uh, Purdue trustees at about the same time, so uh, more than a half century ago, uh, uh, voted a similar resolution that says that Purdue, the institution, will take no position on issues that don't affect its own uh, interests directly or, or those of higher ed um, in general. So uh, both those uh, policies, I was tempted to say shields, <laughs> have been very, very uh, handy. I think they were well advised. I confess they've been handy the last 10 years. Been a lot of things to it could have popped off about, been asked a thousand times, 10,000 times to do so. And it's been quite comfortable to say, well, you know, I have my views, but it wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> yeah, my hands are tied by it. By yeah, I told my friends it's been a, it's been a good uh, uh, period to be a political eunuch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a, a, certainly a challenging time over the last uh, few years. And 
I'm sure it's going to be a challenging time over the next few years uh, as as well. Um, so even if you're a political unit, though, in this in this role and aren't going to speak out on political issues and partisan issues um, as president, um, you have become quite vocal about um, defending intellectual freedom um, and freedom of thought and speech um, uh, these days. Uh, you've been more willing to um, speak out on that issue uh, and take action on that issue than a lot of university um, presidents um, have been. Uh, one aspect of that is that Purdue jumped very quickly into adopting uh, the new Chicago statement um, drafted by uh, Jeff Stone and his colleagues, um, defending on the set of principles uh, relating to uh, free speech. Um, why did y'all jump um, so quickly into adopting that? Why do you think it was a good idea for Purdue um, to embrace those sets of principles as well? Because it's a fundamental uh, and I believe intrinsic uh, uh, part of our uh, duty as a, as a university to not only uh, uh, affirm, but, uh, but to defend and live out those principles. Um, there's a great book by a Princeton professor which uh, sums up, uh, as well as any I've seen, the, the case which not only includes for, for uh, uh, strong fidelity to free speech and free inquiry um, principles, um, which I've cited so very many times because uh, it's not merely, I should put merely in quotation marks, mm -hmm. a matter of fundamental uh, American rights, First Amendment, all the rest, but it, it, uh, to, to abridge those principles, um, to stifle dissenting speech, to enforce conformity of thought, these things which are sadly prevalent across too much of society and higher ed specifically, uh, to do that is to strike at the very heart of the academic enterprise. Knowledge advances only when uh, uh, ideas collide. John Stuart Mill said, both the learner and the teacher go to sleep at their posts when the enemy vacates the field or, you know, where's that effect? So um, it just seemed to me a, a fundamental premise of what we were doing. And on arrival, I checked quickly to see, or even before arrival, what was Purdue's reputation in this area. It was pretty good, but there were a couple of policies having to do, as I recall, with um, spatial limitations on where you could protest and something about what you could put on a bulletin board. So we tidied those up rather quickly. I invited the uh, early on the uh, leader, the president chairman uh, of uh, the watchdog group that is most best known in this area, uh, FIRE, to campus for a speech. And uh, then, then uh, decided that we really ought to make our position as clear as we could here in the most emphatic way we, you can, in the emphatic way, which is for the trustees who, at this and every institution I know, um, have complete authority in this area if they choose to exercise, this or other areas, if they yeah. choose to exercise. And uh, so uh, uh, the rest of it had to do a little bit with laziness, I'll confess, but also with expedition. I, I saw the Chicago statement. Um, told myself, you know, we could have a similar exercise here and it would probably take way too long. And when it was done, it wouldn't be any better, probably not as good as the what Professor Stone had um, had produced. So I called up President Zimmer at Chicago, said, would you mind if a second school Xeroxed your statement? 
He said, no, that'd be fine. We did, and uh, uh, through direct action of the Board of Trustees, and so we put this school on record within the first few months in that way, and I, I just thought it was a um, nothing unusual about it, except that maybe may that such a statement had to be made anyway to uh, make it plain to everyone. Have you been surprised by how controversial that statement's been across the country? So other institutions have followed um, your lead, Princeton's lead in um, adopting um, the statement. Um, uh, I've been struck by um, how few schools ultimately have done that um, and often because there's internal opposition um, at those schools to adopting a statement um, of that sort. Um, have you been surprised by the kind of resistance we've seen across the higher education landscape um, to being uh, so explicit and so firm um, about those kinds of free speech principles? You know more than I do about resistance. I have noticed and I'm disappointed that what I thought might be a um, a widely spreading uh, phenomenon has stalled out. I haven't looked for a while, but um, as far as I know, it, there are 40, 50, 60s, I don't know, some school number that that, that uh, signed up and then um, I've not heard about others lately. You know, I'm a little shy about doing this, but I, I, do, I can claim paternity for the term Chicago principles. I started using it right away in speeches mm -hmm. and, and elsewhere. And, and, and um, part to pay tribute to where it came from, but in part because I thought it might encourage faster adoption. I was thinking at the time about the Sullivan principles for apartheid, right. for instance, um, which I had, uh, I believe, more impact and power because so many companies signed the same statement. They didn't all right. try to write their own. And uh, I just thought the same thing could happen here and it might be, you know, once again, easier than schools going through lengthy exercises and committees and the usual drill. Um, so uh, I was pleased uh, there for a while that a number of schools uh, were embracing them. But uh, again, I it, it sounds like there's been even more back pressure than I'm aware of. And I uh, uh, do note that um, the movement seems to have run out of steam. So you said that you went through uh, your board trustees in order to adopt it. Um, and as you know, sort of the trustees then, of course, have particular governing responsibility. They make the critical rules and regulations uh, for the university uh, more generally. At Princeton, the faculty um, adopted it and incorporated it into our um, uh, faculty rules um, as a consequence of that um, uh, process. Um, if you had gone to the faculty at Purdue, do you anticipate they would have um, embraced it as well? Or do you think there would have been uh, resistance and difficulty getting the faculty to sign on uh, to the Chicago statement at that time? I think ultimately we would have had some kind of a statement. It, it, it would have, um, there, there would have been a long, tortuous process, thousand cooks in the kitchen. Um, I'm not sure how many people would have had the um, nerve, I'll say, to uh, indicate outright opposition, but there might have been some. Uh, we have every stripe of opinion on this campus, thank goodness. Right. Um, so um, uh, we did obviate all of that by, by going to really the ultimate source of authority over policy at a place like this. Again, it's been abdicated by a number of boards, but, uh, uh, but not ours. 
And um, I will say this, that having staked out this position, there's been no active opposition or criticism of it since. There may be folks who um, wouldn't have done it or wouldn't have been happy to see, weren't happy to see it done. But um, I, I do believe that uh, at least from any public utterance and the way we're conducting ourselves here as a community, that we're coming pretty close to living up to these principles. Now, um, it, uh, it's just coincidental that this week in which we're talking, uh, this new uh, rating by the, the watchdog group I mentioned has come out. And um, it's probably impolite to say so, but... <laughs> But, you know, enunciating principles and living up to them, not necessarily the same thing. And dear old alma mater, where you're sitting there, didn't look too good. We were number three and you were number 169 out of 203. Uh, so it's one thing to to vote I. It's another to conduct yourself in, uh, in uh, alignment with the statements you've made. Yeah, no, certainly you've seen that in a lot of places, um, uh, maybe at Princeton as well, but, but certainly lots of other institutions where um, uh, there's, there's one challenge to get them to adopt good rules and policies in the first place. And then there's an additional challenge of how to get them to live up to those policies and actually implement them in a consistent way. Uh, Georgetown University, for example, went through that kind of difficulty uh, just recently where they've got uh, very good policies on the books, um, but um, it's quite a different thing that when the controversy actually arises um, to actually implement those policies um, in a coherent way. Um, uh, so let me just ask then, is from your perspective as a university president, having navigated this process, uh, we just talked about the fact that you sort of uh, took the lead in getting uh, new policies adopted, making sure that the policies that were in place uh, were good ones, not only in the Chicago statement, but also uh, with other kinds of policies. Um, what are the challenges about getting the administration to actually work and, and actually implementing those kinds of policies uh, in a principled way? Um, how did you go about thinking about that as president? What kind of challenges do you think you've encountered um, over the last 10 years or so um, in making that work? Again, I would say they were the, the challenges were were minimal. I, I think that I hope that people here uh, em, embraced what uh, we were doing, looked at it, and said yes, of course, um, uh, or at least were uh, prepared to pay lip service to it. Um, but we've been trying again to uh, uh, to effect this, not simply to uh, make a statement, hope for the best. Um, I think you're aware that uh, on, on the heels of embracing the policy or adopting it, um, I asked those who organize our orientation for new students to make certain that along with uh, introductory sessions in how to study and, and uh, uh, how to manage your money and where the dining courts are, they were introduced to this subject. What are the rights that you have as a student here to speak, to, uh, to, uh, um, to uh, express views, whether they are uh, popular or not? Uh, how do, you, how uh, do we expect you to behave if you encounter a speech that uh, you disagree with? And uh, this thing is built over the course of time. It's been uh, very encouraging to me. We have faculty uh, of various I know um, 
personal philo philosophical views who take part in there are little role playing sessions, for instance, with students and faculty. Uh, so the freshman can observe and he, here's the right way and the wrong way to react to um, speech with which you disagree. Um, we've shared that. We've been asked for that by some other schools and gladly, you know, sent out uh, videos or whatever we have. So um, uh, I do believe that um, we know from some recent surveys that we're not perfect, and there are still students here who feel a little intimidated. By the way, it's just as often by their peers as yeah. by, or, or sometimes more so than by the faculty. But I, um, based on other data I've seen from elsewhere, these problems are at a substantially lower level here than elsewhere. And the FIRE ratings, by the way, are largely based on student surveys and so i take some comfort from that but so uh, we've got work to do but um, i would say that we've had really good cooperation across the campus and acceptance that yeah this is proper this is intrinsic to the academic um and enterprise we're involved in yeah purdue's been really innovative in developing this kind of freshman orientation on on free speech issues and getting students thinking about this um uh from uh, day one um i really wish more universities uh would take that kind of step i, I appreciate the extent you all shared um uh, these kind of materials you've got some of these videos online um showing what y'all what y'all do um uh, i've encouraged princeton but i also encourage other universities to uh, follow your lead um on this because i think it would be very useful in helping build the right kind of campus culture um, by uh, getting students thinking about these things um, uh, when they're calmer uh, before you find yourself in the middle of a controversy somebody has said something disturbing um, and then you're trying to have the conversation about why should you tolerate uh, speech you don't uh, like very much um, what are the institutional risks um, as you see them from controversial um, uh, faculty speech? And should university presidents be worried that a controversial professor might scare away donors, might scare away prospective students, might anger um, uh, politicians in the state, especially for public universities? Um, they're worried about uh, keeping in the good graces um, of their um, uh, local uh, political um, leaders. Um, uh, do you think there's a, do you worry or do you think other university presidents ought to be concerned about um, uh, some uh, professors are becoming too controversial, they're becoming too public, um, and as a consequence, they're going to uh, damage the institution rather than help the institution? Oh, I do think uh, we, we hear about uh, sometimes speech or behavior um, by uh, faculty, students, or some combination at places that probably are injurious. Um, sometimes administrations are complicit in this. You know, Oberlin just cost itself $36 million. And I, I'm sure a lot of future students by uh, certain um, uh, the choices and actions that, that they made, and um, all three categories of people were involved right. in. Um, I'm happy to say I've I've not had to face that here. Sure, we've had professors, we've had speakers on campus that some folks took exception to. That's what we're here for, and I've defended uh, the uh, need for that to happen. Um, and um, uh, you know, I believe this is. I can't say that others don't have reasons for concern, but again, you have to live the 
and and abide by the principles you've you've expressed, and that means that um, the uh, we make plain that the university is not taking these positions. No one of us is is necessarily agreeing with them, but uh, we need to be a place where all all points of view, however uh, outrageous or distasteful, can be heard. Yeah, just a couple of years ago, it seemed like a lot of people on the political right, including um, elected politicians, um, were very vocal about uh, the free speech crisis on college campuses, about the importance of protecting uh, free speech on college campuses. Now there seems to be a race, um, especially among Republican politicians to advance policies aimed at silencing speech uh, they don't particularly like um, at universities. Have you been surprised um, by that turn of events? And how worried are you about um, uh, where we're headed politically? It's the right problem, but the wrong answer. I'm not surprised because, in fact, you know, this is not imaginary. It's been measured. It's there for the. It's plain to see. You have to be a real, uh, as they say, denialist to uh, argue that there's not gross imbalance uh, in, uh, for instance, uh, in uh, uh, the uh, composition of faculties uh, that they're not. Um, at, at uh, great distance from the um, viewpoints uh, collectively, the viewpoints of uh, those who are uh, supporting the schools, either as taxpayers or donors. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised that people have, have been up, upset. And it's not imaginary. Uh, it's measured over and over and over again that too many places, in too many places, too many um, people who should know better are uh, telling students what to think, not teaching them how to think. It's all true. Um, but this is not the answer. You know, silencing, uh, this is like, this, I, take, I should take them to freshman orientation. <laughs> the answer is not to silence those who are saying things you think are wrong or harmful. It's to, uh, it's to balance the argument somehow. I mean, a, a much better answer is to continue to encourage people who might have different outlooks to seek and, and find positions um, uh, where they can bring, uh, as I say, some balance to, uh, to these debates and, uh, and, and, and to the uh, way in which uh, education happens on our campuses. How big of a role do you think legislatures um, should have relative to public universities um, in trying to shape um, what's being taught and studied um, in those universities? So some of these uh, bills um, that Republicans are particularly sponsoring now take particular aim at um, what they at least label uh, critical race theory um, or divisive concepts. A lot of that is focused on what's being taught in the classroom um, and what's allowable. And, and some state legislatures taking the view, we as legislatures ought to become much more um, active and involved in trying to think about the university curriculum, shape the university curriculum, affect um, uh, what students are going to experience um, on uh, campus and in the classrooms. What's your view in general about how uh, much of a role legislatures um, ought to uh, be taking in, in that regard? I personally think there's a, a important qualitative difference between K-12 and higher education here. And um, I understand and up to a point at least um, um, uh, agree with legislatures who are watching what is being taught to um, 
you know, eight and 10, 12 year olds uh, who are in a classroom where the teacher is, there's one teacher, one book, if there's a book, right. uh, one source of uh, truth, as they say. And, um, uh, and, the, and these are, are young and innocent and, uh, students. And, and there have, there, there's clearly a lot going on out there, which is, uh, to say the least, not advancing their chances of being successful, productive citizens. I'm talking about, you know, time spent on, on these subjects is not being spent on the multiplication tables or the English language and so forth. Um, so that I think uh, up to some point is entirely their responsibility. Uh, they're paying uh, all the bills for public education. So they're entirely within their rights to ask those questions. Now, when you cross the dividing line to higher education, where the students are older, there are multiple sources of, of, of courses. There are, there's, there are libraries full of books. And, and um, here, I just think it's very different. You just have to protect freedom of, of uh, faculty to teach what they want. Students up generally have a choice of what they want to, what courses they want to take. And so uh, I, I see that as very, very different. Um, that doesn't mean there's no role for the uh, legislatures in our state. And I think this was entirely appropriate. Um, they commissioned a survey. So Gallup just took a survey on every campus asking students about this, the state of free speech and all the questions we've been discussing here. You know, uh, do you feel free to say what you think? Uh, do you feel you're being... Uh, You'll be penalized in class if you don't agree with the professor. Uh, is there some balance in the speakers you see brought to campus? Questions like that. I think uh, uh, ferreting out that information, making it transparently public, perfectly good, um, uh, perfectly worthy uh, uh, subject for, for legislatures. And uh, then legislators may or may not take action based on it probably shouldn't in most cases but it's it the information will be there for students and families and others to examine yeah it's certainly potentially useful for if, for families uh, making choices about what institutions they want to go to um, right. uh, for example is knowing something about what the climate is on those campus, how comfortable students feel um, about expressing um, uh, controversial opinions or how interested are they in hearing controversial opinions um, on those campuses. One of those things that's not very easy to see from a parent's perspective on the outside, um, but one of those things that you might imagine uh, should affect your calculation about where do I want to send my kids? Um, I promise you it's on the minds of a lot of parents and, and students, by the way. I don't want to make too much of this, yeah. but we've... Uh, I had very fast growth here at Purdue University. We're 30% bigger than we were a decade ago. And there are, a lot, there are bigger, much bigger factors at play there, I believe. But I, um, not a week goes by, I don't hear from a student, a parent, or um, a loved one, or someone who says, uh, uh, my students come into Purdue because I have greater, a greater sense that They'll spend their time actually being educated and well-educated and rigorously educated and not uh, indoctrinated. And um, uh, I, I, I just know that's at least played some role in our growth. Uh, one of the things that seems to be on the table um, uh, these days is significant reform in tenure systems, um, especially um, at public universities. Um, down in my home state of Texas, uh, the Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick 
um, has recently called for abolishing tenure um, entirely um, at uh, public universities um, in that state. Um, you've now had a lot of experience um, as a university president. Um, do you see tenure as a problem uh, from your perspective? Is it in need of some significant uh, reform? If you were starting today, this is probably not the system you would design. I'll tell you that uh, one of the most uh, um, useful conversations I ever had on this subject um, was with William Bowen, the former president of Princeton, who was one of those people I sought out as a you know green raw rookie that I was, and frankly, still feel like I am <laughs> some days. Uh, 10 years ago, as I, when I was preparing for the job. And uh, he was very open about the fact that he thought tenure was uh, an obsolete, uh, if it had ever made sense, uh, probably no longer did. Um, the, there, are, uh, there are practical issues people have raised with it for a long time. People who, have, who stay beyond their um, shelf life, really. <laughs> um, the uh, you know to me one of the ironies of course is that tenure is defended and was innovated to protect academic freedom, and now it exists in places where there is very little academic freedom in the sense mm -hmm. that uh, um, homogeneity and conformity of thought is pretty rigorously enforced. You know, so what do you need tenure for if everybody thinks the same thing? Right. You know, who's being protected? Yeah. Now, all that said, um, uh, it doesn't have to be a big detriment. Here at Purdue, we have one of the highest percentages of tenure track, tenure, tenure track faculty in, in, our, in the country and in our peer group. And I, um, yes, it, it leads from time to time to, um, I believe, substandard outcomes, and, but um, it, it has not been a, um, a, a, a problem, I thought, um, it was uh, large enough to warrant some change in. And you, you have the obvious problem of uh, unilateral disarmament. People say, well, if you, if you started moving to a different system, let's say long-term contracts, but not right. lifetime contracts, right? X years re reviewable, that you would have trouble recruiting, you know, the Whittingtons of this world, because they'll go somewhere where they can get a lifetime guarantee. And uh, uh, while that's the case, it'll, it'll be a little hard for somebody to break free and, on their own. And what do you think is the advantage of a long-term contract, say a 10-year contract, for example, instead of um, a lifetime uh, tenure? Is the, uh, do you see the primary upside being that um, uh, you can assess whether or not faculty are still um, doing their jobs well um, and so make some uh, movement on that regard is the primary value that it allows you to have more flexibility in terms of structuring the curriculum and, and how you staff um, the teaching or is it um, or is it something else? No, I think it's the second uh, yeah. argument pr primarily. I mean, there have been big shifts even in the decade I've been involved uh, in, in what students want to study. I'm not happy about all of them, by the way, because, <laughs> uh, because I'm a fan of the liberal arts and, right. and some of the categories which have been shrinking. But the, but the fact is uh, that uh, at a time of, of stress and where we have to be concerned, I mean, Princeton's bulletproof, but, but there's so many fine in institutions which aren't so... Uh, uh, heavily endowed and, and, and so insulated who are under real pressure. And 
it's a real problem if you are locked in to a faculty in an, yeah. in an area where you'd like to shift resources to something that is of a greater interest to today's students and you can't do it. Right. Uh, so I think it's primarily that uh, I really don't think you know that uh, if, if there was an honest review at 10 years, you would like to think that there aren't schools that would that would uh, conjure up a reason to dismiss Professor Smith because of his or her uh, the substance of his or her views. Um, but um, I, but that happens, you know, if it happens, it uh, wouldn't necessarily outweigh the um, overall advantages. Mm. Um, one of your legacies at Purdue is um, the growth of scientific research um, on campus. Purdue is very focused on the sciences um, in, in general. Um, how important do you see academic freedom to being to innovative research? And can faculty do a better job of explaining the value of academic freedom to those outside of academia by trying to connect it a little bit to some of the things that people care about with higher education, which includes not only the teaching, um, but also the research and innovation that occurs on university campuses. They should. I wish they would more often. It, I, I wish I could say it's not a problem in the, in the that it's only a matter, you know, of in the uh, social sciences or elsewhere. But uh, we've seen a lot of of. Uh, uh, active uh, attempts to suppress um, different scientific views. You know, what was done in the case of the so-called Barrington Declaration, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, it looks as though, by the way, the, the thousands of scientists who signed that were right. But even if you thought they weren't, the attempt to quash what yeah. they were doing was very anti-scientific. It's very dangerous tendency. Much the same could be said on some of the environmental questions we're dealing with. You know, uh, um, uh, Galileo, Galileo was right, but they were ready to hang him for it. Right. And right. so um, uh, I do think that's, that's a, extremely important. One of the guests that I, I brought to campus um, is a fellow named Stephen Coonan. Mm -hmm. and he wrote a, a book which questioned um, not the basic conclusions of current climate science, not that the, it's a real problem demanding action, not that it's um, not anthropogenic, anthropogenetic, I'm stumbling <laughs> over the word, you know, uh, man-caused, but, um, but, but uh, he, he found in the data itself, many contradictions, many uh, flawed conclusions and so forth. So um, when I brought him here, I, I, in the interview, I tried to get the basics out of the way right away. Right. You know, is climate a, a problem? Yes. Is man a principal contributor? Yes. You know, yes, yes, yes. Because I wanted to spend most of the hour on this question of forget climate for a minute, just as a matter of, of the progress of knowledge, isn't it essential to protect the novel, the unorthodox, the heretic, if necessary, uh, if only to test the continued validity of whatever conventional wisdom is. And sometimes the heretic is onto something. So anyway, I think that 
I, I, I wish this was a problem that was only we only found in our oh, political discourse and you know the arguments that uh, we have about social matters, but it is in the sciences too, and I think that's pernicious. Right. Um, so you touched on uh, this before, but let me end with um, asking you a bit more about um, this problem um, of relatively few professors being from the political right. Uh, you mentioned that you thought that uh, university faculty were too homogeneous in their um, outlook and perspective and their um, politics, that that has um, uh, some damaging effects um, about um, freedom of thought and argument um, on college campuses. Um, it also seems to have some damaging effects in terms of the reputation of college campuses. Some uh, conservative politicians and activists um, seem more unhappy with you universities they might otherwise be because they look at them as being sort of hostile territory um, uh, dominated by the political left um, with uh, little representation uh, from the political right. Do you see this as much of a problem that there are few professors on the political right um, as such that have actual consequences for scholarship and teaching um, uh, in that regard? And is there anything universities um, can reasonably be doing to help change that situation? Yes, and I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean, it's a problem. Again, you have to be some sort of denialist to not see that or not, not accept that. And, I, and I, I would hope, and I know that there are many people who um, have very sincere views that we would call uh, leftists who mm -hmm. acknowledge that uh, this, is, uh, this is an issue. Um, and <laughs> I, I've got a friend who I guess fits that description, a very uh, eminent uh, scholar at one of your Ivy League competitors. Uh, and uh, we were talking about this one time, and he said that he had asked the chair of their, I think it was history department, do you have any conservatives or Republicans currently? And the answer was, have any? We don't know any. <laughs> uh, so. Um, Yes, it's a problem, but it resembles tenure in the sense that I don't know what the practical answer is. You hear the obstacles um, are not necessarily the, the competition that, that I mentioned in that context, yeah. but uh, um, you know the selection process um, is, is involved. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, what must be uh, at some Greek fraternities or something, you know, people picking people just like themselves Right. And you do this for two or three generations and you get where we've arrived. Uh, very, very uh, monolithic in too many cases, uh, departments. And then that leads in turn, I think, to discouragement of people who say, why would I want to choose that as a career? Why would I want to apply to that place? I don't have a chance. And if I get there, they'll treat me like a leper. And so that uh, that's a very real practical issue. And um uh, you know, if there's an answer, it would have to be that uh, schools uh, uh, lift the selection process out of the hands of the incumbents, the guild, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, or at least uh, scrutinize it more carefully than than happens. I've not gone near it in our at our place. Haven't wanted to. Haven't thought it desirable at all. Um, uh, but I. And, and I do believe by the nature of our institution, it's a lesser problem here. Uh -huh. You know, uh, our uh, physicists and our engineering professors and computer scientists 
want brilliance. They want colleagues who uh, are going to enliven and enrich the place and so forth. And since they predominate numerically here, the places where I, I think we do have some uh, imbalances are, are fewer and smaller. But elsewhere, I know that's it's a real challenge. Some on the right, I guess, have suggested that um, uh, board of trustees ought to be more involved in the hiring and promotion process, that maybe university presidents ought to be more involved in the hiring and promotion process of faculty in or with this in mind of saying it's a way of helping to weed out um, uh, faculty who seem uh, too troublesome or controversial uh, from their perspective, maybe also a way of um, encouraging um, the hiring of more conservative faculty uh, that perhaps the university faculty acting on their their own uh, would not be very inclined um, to, to make. Um, is that a solution you find um, appealing? So you said you've uh, been hands-off uh, relative to that in, in your own, own role at Purdue, um, but do you think in, in other institutions, other people, um, that that's something they ought to be thinking about is let's have the board trustees uh, more engaged in faculty hiring and promotion decisions? I'd be very careful about that. Uh, uh, such boards, uh, I do believe, said earlier, uh, uh, in many cases should be more active in setting policies, but individual uh, selections, they're not either competent or nor is it appropriate, I think, for them to be too involved in that. No, I mean, I think a better answer is to uh, try to establish the basic policies of, and the basic outlook that I think we've been discussing here about the kind of environment yeah. and climate that, that uh, ought to exist on Campus A, uh, hire leaders who are committed to that, who in, in turn should appoint leaders, deans, for instance, who understand that's part of the job, that maintaining freedom, genuine freedom mm -hmm. for the faculty um, in their area and, and trying to make certain there is some variety in the student's interest uh, in, uh, in the uh, approaches and, and even the outlooks of those that they uh, bring on, uh, I think is a, is a better way to do it. The higher up you lift it, the more, I think, clumsy and probably ultimately uh, inappropriate it will be. Somewhat ironically, some on the right, I think, have started calling for a kind of affirmative action for conservative faculty um, on this perspective, despite the fact that they're quite hostile to affirmative action in other kinds of contexts. Um, do you think there's some kind of version of affirmative action or some kind of quota system uh, for creating uh, more political diversity on college campuses that would be um, uh, useful as a tool for trying to break up um, what some people see as um, a two- um, uh, uh, homogeneous um, uh, faculty? Well, no, not, uh, no to quotas everywhere and always. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't rule out the idea that, you know, new chairs could be created mm -hmm. um, um, and, um, and, and people uh, recruited who otherwise might not pass through the, uh, the sieve or the filter of uh, political uh, correctness uh, uh, by somebody's definition. Uh, I think that's, that's, let me just say, I think that's far preferable to some of the other uh, approaches that we just talked about. Uh -huh. 
So, so thanks so much for uh, this conversation. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on wrapping up uh, your tenure um, uh, leading uh, institution of higher education. It's a tough time uh, to be uh, running these institutions. You've just been through um, a very difficult few years and I expect we'll have more difficult uh, years ahead of us. And so I really appreciate um, everyone who's willing to take these kind of leadership roles um, and, and manage universities because it's not an easy job. Well, that's very kind, but my mine has has been a, a joy end to end, and I'm more fortunate, I guess, than than many. Uh, but thank you for your own contributions. Uh, I was more than happy to uh, have this invitation because that Princeton professor whose book I've been out promoting is you. And uh, <laughs> anyone who has any uh, remaining doubts or confusions either about the, the the virtues of of a strong position in these. Uh, issues or uh, the best ways to think about them and argue them can just read your book and that'll take care of it. Well, I appreciate that. Available at fine bookstores near you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. You bet. See you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.